Hello and welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack, and I'm by myself today recording a short little bonus episode um, for the podcast. And really what I wanted to do, I'm recording this on the 27th, uh, June 27th. There's just a few days left in Pride Month, and I wanted to take a little bit of time and reflect on Pride Month and some of the commentary I've seen from progressive Christians. Because in just a few days... Another Pride Month will come to an end. Many of the flown rainbow flags will be replaced by American ones. Companies with logos will flip back to their traditional brand, and the collective social consciousness of the people of the United States will undoubtedly shift to something else. However, as I reflect back on this year's Pride Month, uh, this short-lived annual widespread celebration and fascination with the LBGTQ's communities values and principles, this year feels maybe an extra bit tragic to me, uh, especially when I think back on what I've read and seen from progressive or professive slash progressive Christians supporting this effort. Why? Because almost everything about Pride Month and the LBGTQ community's focus is on the vain and the temporal. Very soon for all of us, these earthly bodies and our sexual realities and fantasies will end, will die, and we'll have to face God. And on that day, I question, what will have been the eternal weight and worth of a diversified, inclusive sexual life? For me, this is one of the major philosophical and theological hurdles in the progressive movement's support of the LBGTQ's movement. It fails to consider any substantive, eternal perspective. By design, the entire movement is focused on celebrating the here and the now. It's entirely horizontal, and one can dress up all of the flowery language around it with love, acceptance, equality, affirmation, so on and so forth. But if you peel back all those layers and look underneath, can we be honest, we're really just talking about sex. If you remove sex from this growing list of Pride Month virtues, and I kind of rattled off there, the entirety of the structure, the movement fails. It really is fundamentally about sex. And any person, this doesn't regardless of their sexual orientation, if their life is defined by sex, that is by definition shallow and short-sighted. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to eliminate or, or, um, or really downplay the significance of sex for humanity. That's not what I'm doing. Sex is essential to the human experience and posterity. It is a God-given gift, clearly defined in Scripture. It is a purpose, a place, a utility. It truly is a beautiful thing when practiced appropriately. But it is not eternal. Its pleasures and functions cease with our bodies. When they die, it dies. There is nothing in Scripture to suggest that sex is part of the new creation. Uh, Jesus even points out in Matthew 22 that there's not marriage in heaven. Yet somehow our culture, as a culture, We've elevated sex and sexual identity to be the cultural endgame. It's the end. It's what we exist for. We have effectively, as Paul describes in Romans 1.25, quote-unquote, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So Pride Month, in a bulk of the LBGTQ movement, it teaches people, this is what I've seen, this is kind of what I'm reflecting on primarily this week, it, it, it teaches people that their worth comes from sexual preferences. 
And this is so disheartening to me. Friends, that is unequivocally heartbreaking for all the progressive Christians who criticize conservative Christians for being narrow-minded or bigoted or whatever they, they say. Think about that reality. My criticisms of, of the movement are not rooted in bigotry. Rather, I'm over here pleading for the people to recognize the eternal magnitude and value of the human soul. A person's worth, value, and identity do not come from sexuality. Rather, our value comes from being made in the image of God. If we boil the human experience down to something as simple or trivial as human experience or, I'm sorry, sexual experience or identity, we debase it, we cheapen it. I mean, what is the value of a human soul? Um, I'll ask you to consider the words of uh, the great late theologian R.C. Sproul in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He wrote that, quote, we can see the true value of souls by noting how much Jesus was willing to pay for the souls of his people. God died on a cross to ransom human souls and restore what we had previously broken. And it's here, it's at that intersection that we must find our value, begin to see and calculate our worth, our purpose, and our identity. To live God-glorifying, wholesome lives, um, we must have a cross-centric perspective shaped um, in that worldview. Uh, one of the defining elements of being a Christian is that our complete individuality is rooted in the eternity of Christ and his kingdom. It's a big point. Um, in Richard Niebert's classic book, Christ and Culture, he elaborates on how this is an enduring problem. He calls it an enduring problem that this eternal perspective of Christians has really given problems to civilizations and cultures throughout the span of history. Because while Christians are called to live in the world, Christian ideals transcend all earthly cultures, values, and systems. And this is because Christ, and I'm quoting Richard Niebuhr here, quote, enables men to regard this current disaster with a certain equanimity, directs their hopes towards another world, and so seems to deprive them of the motivation to engage in the ceaseless labor of conserving a mass, uh, a massive but insecure social heritage. In other words, Christianity has survived thousands of years because it fundamentally exists beyond the here and now. And this is where the power of the Christian life really dwells. This is where it really digs in and finds its roots deep. It provides the common man with an eternal perspective on his life. And with this worldview in full tact, you can take away everything from a person, even his very life. And yet if he's in Christ, he knows he has lost absolutely nothing. Uh, and this is why it's been such a problem for cultures over the centuries. They can't control Christians because a Christian recognizes that his individuality is not here in the here and now, but rooted in living for the eternity of Christ and his kingdom. Uh, consider how Apostle Paul says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says that, quote, as we look to the things that are as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And when it comes to LBGTQ's ideals, progressive Christians seem to forget or ignore any perspective that considers the bodily resurrection and the new coming creation. Uh, scripture teaches us that the spirit and the body will be joined together in perfect harmony forever, and by the blood of Christ we will be pure and spotless in heaven. And in this state, there's no need for sex or sexual identity. 
As I pointed out earlier, as Jesus said, there's not even marriage for heaven. There's not a need for it. Our entire existence will be rooted and satisfied in the glory of Christ. And Christians, if we bear the name and mark of Christ upon our life and soul, we are citizens of heaven before we are anything else. Every other aspect of our life must submit in line to this glorious reality. Everything we do, everything we say should be influenced by that coming day. That is, that day when Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And in doing so, on that day, he will make right all that is wrong and establish his kingdom forever. And in that, in that place, there's no room for fleeting sexual experiences. In fact, they pale in comparison to the weight of this glorious truth. And this is why, as I reflect on some of the progressive Christians who seem to be obsessed with affirming the culture's sexual deviances, it baffles me. Nothing about the sexual revolution has eternal weight, and, uh, eternal weight significance, and perspective. In contrast, you know, I understand why an atheist might want to live this way. After all, what do they have to live for except for the here and now? But for someone to call themselves a Christian and share this short-sighted view of a reality is nothing short of disastrous. And let me give you an example. There was an article I read this week, a progressive Christian explained, uh, and I'll link it here, is on Patheos, why he, he was frustrated with some Christians not celebrating Pride Month, and he describes really what he saw um, as the substance of Pride Month and why it's, why it's important for, uh, for progressive Christians and really what he's arguing for, for all Christians to celebrate. So I'm quoting him here. Uh, he says, quote, Many Christians believe it is a celebration of arrogance, failing to grasp the profound message of love, acceptance, and unconditional support. Sadly, these are often direct attempts to mask homophobia, transphobia, cause deep wounds, and hinder beautiful opportunities to love unconditionally opportunities to actually model the Jesus these Christians claim to follow. And he continues, At the core of Pride Month is a principle of unconditional love and acceptance. Christianity itself teaches the importance of loving one's neighbor as oneself, regardless of differences or personal beliefs. By dismissing Pride Month and believing an ongoing false teaching that condemns the LGBTQ plus community, Christians miss a chance to practice and embody the unconditional love that their faith encourages. Love knows no boundaries and extends to all individuals, irrespective of sexual orientation or gender identity. End quote. So there's a lot there, a lot there, and I would respond with, uh, with a couple of things. First, as you might have noticed, there was little to nothing said about an eternal perspective. Everything about this position is extremely horizontal. It's just talking about the community and the people around them, and I've kind of talked about that a little bit already. But secondly, as a Christian, I want to stress that I do want to practice and embody the love of God in my life towards my neighbor, but I want to do so as Christ instructed. Uh, for many, the command of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 12, 39, may come to mind, and I suspect this verse or a verse like it's repeated a couple times in Scripture is the thrust of this uh, author's general argument. And this is a wonderful verse, but if you read the entire section of Scripture, you see that the, that the, the, the comment finds its substance in the vertical and eternal. There's some context here which, which really brings to light how we're to understand this loving of neighbor. So let me read that. It's Matthew 12, verses 36 through 40, and uh, Jesus is responding to a question. The question is, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, being Jesus, said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Notice how the vertical, that is the quote, great and first commandment, uh, and the loving of thy neighbor uh, comes after that, right? So there's this vertical, great and first commandment, love the Lord your God, and then coming out of that, flowing out of it, unto like it, is a loving of the neighbor. Also take note, I think this is important, that Jesus says that the law of the prophets is fulfilled in these commandments. Really important. The law, being the Old Testament, has some very serious wording about sex being used in the wrong way. And Jesus isn't doing away with this. He's not saying this is irrelevant. He's saying that it's fulfilled in this way. Therefore, there's there's absolutely no argument to be made that celebrating one's sexual identity, experiences, deviances, whatever it may be, is in some way fulfilling the commandment to love your neighbor. If anything, if this is really the thrust in the context of your argument, I, you might be blaspheming the words and intent of Christ here. He's saying that the loving of the neighbor fulfills the law and that the law is still substantive. There's still, there's holiness to it. It's reflective of God's character. So it's not an excuse to just go do whatever you want or just affirm whatever someone is doing. No, Jesus is not, he's saying so much more than that. It is rooted vertically first and then goes horizontally second. Another argument I sometimes hear from progressive Christians is that by celebrating Pride Month, and its virtues, we are effectively carrying out the Great Commission. This is something I've heard a few times, that the Great Commission, uh, you know, if we're out there, we're loving people, we're, we're doing the work of the Christian, that we're influencing the world for the kingdom of God, something along the lines of that. Uh, but I say that the, you know, the Great Commission says nothing about accepting or affirming one's sexual preferences as being legitimate or illegitimate. Rather, it's about carrying out the message of the gospel of the nations for the purpose of making disciples of Christ. Uh, Paul clearly says that he is, quote, not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. And if you think the point and the substance of the gospel is to liberate someone to enjoy whatever sexual experience comes into their heart, you receive. That is not why Jesus came to die on the cross. If anything, that's just lust, right? That, but that is not the gospel. Upon becoming Christians, we are uh, called to forsake all these current identities and submit everything about our purpose and will to Christ. We become citizens of heaven who serve the King Jesus, and this should impact everything about us. It should change and shape our perspective on how we view our friends, our family, our spouse, our children, our job, our temperament, our character, our church, and even, yes, how we view and use sex. The entirety of the human experience is forced when confronted with the person of Jesus to take a radical shift. And this is the power of the transformation of the gospel in Christ. It has the power to change us to become and see the world as Jesus does. And I would be doing this topic a little bit of injustice if I didn't quickly touch on the point that Christians uh, should and do show love in the temporal. You know, we're not so eternally focused that we completely forsake and ignore the temporal. That's a heresy. Uh, there's a lot of verses that that point this out, how we should be uh, in the community, loving, doing the work of, uh, of Christ in the world. Um, Matthew 25 is a great place if you want to go study that. We have clear teaching on the need for Christians to love, serve, feed, and aid the world. 
and we should and must do this if we are followers of Christ. Our faith, if our faith is genuine and we claim to be citizens of heaven, we should do all that we can to love and serve and care for those around us. However, there's not a single example in all of Scripture where this act of loving includes celebrating someone's sexual identity or preferences or experiences or anything like that. Uh, it, it's just not there. There is no eternal uh, perspective or significance to it. In closing, uh, let us consider for a moment the person of King Solomon. I think he's a great case study for this topic. Because here you have a man who is given the ability to explore sexuality and self-indulgence to its fullest. In fact, I'm pretty confident that there's no one listening to this that can begin to compare to the self-indulgent exploits of King Solomon. Um, we see You can see a lot of this in Kings and Ecclesiastes. And in fact, Ecclesiastes 2.1, he explains that his whole kind of approach to this was, as he says to his heart, quote, uh, Ecclesiastes 2.1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Um, we can see in 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, I think it says he had, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and there was nothing that, that uh, King Solomon uh, did not withhold from himself. And so let's, let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, 9 through 11, because Solomon sums that point up really well and gives us um, really good context, right, for how to think about this. Uh, Solomon says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon essentially says, the net gain of a life and society that affirms all of some someone, uh, say, let me re-say that, the net gain of a life and society that not only affirms, but uh, fulfills and supplies someone's sexual desires is vanity. It's empty. There's nothing there. There's no substance to it. And if you look a bit further at Solomon's uh, thoughts on this, his response throughout the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, you really begin to see this shift as he begins to recognize um, the entirety of the temporal experience really needs to be seen through the lens of eternity. Uh, we see phrases like, quote, uh, five, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, God is the one you must fear. He's bringing it up vertical. Uh, he reminds us that and says plainly that man does not know his time, uh, nine twelve, and that for all of us, uh, 12, 7, uh, 12, 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So he continually beginning to filter these temporal, self-indulgent experiences in light of eternity and of God who gave them. Uh, but above all, you know, we see that um, there is a place. Solomon tells us that there is a place for these things when they're done appropriately in a God-fearing way. The same is true for sex. Um, however, let's kind of, as we wrap this up, right, uh, I, th I think we kind of get the point. All is vanity. Everything is vanity. There's no eternal perspective in the way in the way, uh, you know, progressive Christians and so many have endorsed Pride Month and the LBGT uh, community, right? It's it's empty. There's there's nothing of substance and eternal there. 
but in closing of this of this podcast, I want to look at the way Solomon ends his book because I think I think he says it just really well, just so beautiful. Uh, Solomon ends the book of Ecclesiastes with these couple verses. So listen, listen closely. He says, "The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God." And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Friends, our culture doesn't need a month of pride. It doesn't need someone to affirm sexual uh, experiences, identity, or whatever. What our culture needs is a lifetime of God-fearing repentance. Sex is unbelievably fleeting and temporal, but our souls are eternal. Therefore, let us seek out the kingdom of Christ, live for the kingdom of heaven, and let that influence all that we do. This has been The Chorus and the Chaos. I hope this has blessed you. Have a great day, everybody.